Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the History of Cyprus podcast, the birthplace of Aphrodite, the legendary goddess of love and beauty. Situated at the crossroads of ancient civilizations, Cyprus holds a pivotal place in history as the fulcrum to the Bronze Age, where cultures flourished and left their indelible mark. As we delve into the annals of Cyprus's past, we'll uncover the mysteries of its ancient kingdoms, trace the footsteps of conquerors and settlers, and unravel the stories of remarkable individuals who shaped its destiny. My name is Andreas, and I am the host of the History of Cyprus podcast. Every month, I will be releasing a new episode as it relates to Cypriot history. I interview leading academics in their respective fields, where we cover Cyprus from 10,000 BCE to the 20th century. We'll discuss language, culture, war, economy, religion, political and social history, challenging traditional narratives and problematizing long-held misconceptions. But what's more, every month we also dramatize primary sources as a teaser for the upcoming episode. You can find the History of Cyprus podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow the History of Cyprus on Instagram and support us through Patreon. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 273, Rome and Persia, the 700-year rivalry with Adrian Goldsworthy. Today I interview historian Adrian Goldsworthy about his new book, and before you ask, yes, we talk all about Heraclius and the final war with the Persians. Stay tuned for some brilliant insights into that ever-fascinating topic. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Goldsworthy is an award-winning historian of the classical world. He's written a dozen books on Greco-Roman topics, including biographies of Julius Caesar, Augustus, as well as studies of the Roman army and the empire's rise and fall. So if you like what you hear today, there is a small library of Goldsworthy goodness waiting for you to read. And if you prefer to listen you can get his latest book on audible.com. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash Byzantium to listen for free. More on that at the end of the interview. His latest book is about the 700-year-long rivalry between Rome and the Parthians and then the Sassanids. 700 years. It just doesn't, it doesn't sound right, does it? He covers everything from... Crassus having gold poured down his throat to Trajan's triumphs and Julian's death all the way down to Heraclius recovering the true cross and of course everything in between. The book is already out in the UK with the title The Eagle and the Lion but it will be out in the USA on the 12th of September 2023 under the title Roman Persia The 700-Year Rivalry. <laughs> 
Here's the interview. Dr. Adrian Goldsworthy, welcome to the History of Byzantium podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, it's a great pleasure to talk to you. Um, I've been following your books for a long time, and um, the, uh, listeners may already know that you know you've covered the Roman army and you've covered the careers of Caesar and Augustus in in great detail. So it's not a it's not hard to imagine why the wars with Persia. Uh, would interest you. But can you tell us what inspired you to cover the entire 700-year rivalry in one book? Well, it's it's a slightly odd story because the publishers actually approached me and said, would you write a book on the last generation or so, so very much the 7th century AD and that dramatic change? And I sat down to think about that over the course of a weekend. And well, really, you can't understand that unless you've looked at the 6th century before it. And then you can't really understand the 6th century unless you've looked at the 5th. And it came to me that really we need to tell the whole story. You know, Parthia and the Sasanian Persia, they are the same empire. They are two different dynasties and there are some organizations and obviously it's a long, long period of time. But as far as the Romans are concerned, you're dealing with this great power to the East pretty much all the way through your history from the first century BC onwards. And the more I thought about it, I couldn't think there, there isn't really any study that looks at relations between the two from the start right to the very end. There are lots of marvelous stuff, particular periods, particular things. And we do compartmentalize things so much as historians, and especially within the academic world, even when you're teaching courses for students, you know, you start, it's almost as if there's this cliff edge between the um, the Principate and then late antiquity, and then later Byzantine history. It's sort of sudden, abrupt, as if there's nothing, you know, you're, you're not starting from something. It's a completely clean slate. And actually, it, it is... Everything makes far more sense when you look at this long perspective and the changes seem that much more dramatic when they do occur. And the, you know, the, the violence and the, 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 the ambition in that last big war is striking because it hasn't been there before. So I just, it, it grew to the point where I went back to them and said, no, actually, this is the story I want to tell because nobody's done it and it's really important. And it brings you on to the Parthians and the Persians and this world we don't know so much. And, it, and even if we can't talk about them in the same detail as we can with the Greeks and Romans, nevertheless, there's more we can do. And at the very least, you can ask the questions, even if you can't get good answers for, you know, how does it seem from their point of view? What's their perspective? Why? So it's very much the story of the relationship. And it, if you take a long perspective, it's surprising how much peace and stability there is between these two both aggressive expansionist empires. So that with every book I've written, things have surprised me as I've gone along. And this one, I think even more so. It just, it, it, was, it wasn't what I was expecting. And, um, and that makes it more exciting to write and hopefully more exciting to read. That's interesting. And because I want to talk about that, that later period later on, but wh what did you find the most unexpected in that period because you would have covered caesar's plans and augustus's peace with the parthians in great detail so in that between that and heraclius what sort of struck you as well it, it some of the the oddest things is when it you, you actually sit down and think about it and you realize that the only land battle discussed in any detail is carhai and mm. that's in plutarch and dio and bits and bobs from elsewhere then the next description of equivalent detail of a field battle is procopius yeah and then nothing <laughs> no, it's you've got little bits and you've got all this information so we we know there's lots of wars we know there's loads of battles we've got 
for Amianus, you get detail of, of sieges, which you've never had before in that, that level. And then you get some of that with Procopius as well. And, you know, overall, probably Procopius is the most detailed source you've ever get for relations between the two powers. And yet you've got 700 years of history. We know these big events are going on. They mention the things that happen. So we generalize from some very small little incidents and partial descriptions of those so that it struck me that what we think of as how the Parthians and Romans fight isn't really based on very much. And that if you look at the things each side actually does, you know, the, 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 the standard conventional wisdom is that it's the Sasanian Persians who develop good, effective siege craft. And this seems to appear in the third century as if by magic. But in the past, the Parthians have taken cities. So how have they done that? And how much is evolution rather than sudden revolution? And, and um, the convenience of for late Romanists, the reason for them that the, the empire has to reform so much that you get the tetrarchy, you get this militarization, you get the um, different, very different system, very different political culture of late third and into the fourth centuries is because the Sasanian Persians appear along with a load of Germans beyond the, the Rhine and Danube that are suddenly more threatening. But actually, the longer perspective, what's the change? There's very little difference. It's just you're a lot weaker because you're busy fighting civil wars and you're doing things differently. So um, everything, even many of the assumptions, you know, there's been a big debate in um, Roman history about what the Roman frontiers are for. Are they primarily defensive to protect the provinces or are is the empire and the emperor still obsessed with Imperium Senefine, you know, empire power without limit, constant expansion. And then you look at the first century AD and okay, the Romans and Parthians do fight each other. There's some small scale stuff under Augustus early on in Tiberius. You've got the, the war in Armenia under Nero and then little bits. But otherwise there's a hundred years. Even those wars are incredibly limited. The Armenian war goes on for a decade, but it's very focused geographically and it's very limited objectives. And it's primarily each side supporting allies in an Armenian civil war, there's no serious attempt. Even when you look at Crassus or Antony, there aren't serious attempts to conquer huge swathes of territory ever, which throws this whole debate as to the Romans as sort of fundamentally aggressive into a completely different light. Because when you look at what they're actually doing, rather than what the poets choose to say now and again, it's far more practical. It's far more, they're very cautious. And lots of opportunities for conflict aren't followed. So you have, you know, the first century is remarkably quiet. Even the second century, big wars, Trajan, Lucius Verus, Septimius Severus. If you're generous, that's maybe 10 years out of 100. And the rest of the time they're at peace, possibly nervous peace at times. But it, it's, you, you sort of have a sense of pattern. It's more like um, 17th, 18th, and um, and 19th and even early 20th century Europe, the, the wars between France and Spain at various times, Prussia, Germany, that occur in the same areas again and again and have short-term advantage, but no real, you're never fighting to destroy the other side. Again, I think it's, it's, it's because perhaps the 20th century and the world wars have influenced us into this idea that you fight a war until you utterly defeat the enemy, mm. that human history isn't really like that. Mm. The Parthians, the Persians, the Romans can absorb much smaller neighbors sometimes, mm. but anybody bigger, you don't have the capacity, but also the will. You're not trying to do an Alexander the Great and just charge around and change the whole world. So it's 
that long-term perspective just puts everything into a very different light. And it's, as I say, I'd looked at so many of these periods in detail and come with the assumptions that, oh, yeah, there's major tension all the time. There's always a threat. The Romans would love to go and conquer large parts of of, um, Parthia Persia. The the Parthians and Persians themselves genuinely want to get Syria, get get back to sort of the old Achaemenid Empire. They might, you know, it might have been a nice pipe dream that they each people had, but they never really make this serious effort to do that. So the rivalry is is very cautious. It's very it's sort of self-imposed limits mm. on the wars you fight. So you fight often, but you're not really expecting too much from it. Mm. Um, that that means all the wars you just then start to look at in a very different way. Yeah, you get the sense that for long periods, both empires were quite happy with the status quo. Mm. Um, I, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but mm. that is fascinating about the lack of accounts of mm. campaigns. Do you do you get the sense that's because obviously we? I want to ask you later about why we mm. don't have Persian mm. accounts. But I suppose for Roman historians, if you're unless you're living mm. on the eastern border or you're posted there like Procopius, you're unlikely to run into soldiers you can ask. Oh, what happened? Well, it's not so much that. I mean, I think there, there was a lot. And obviously, you've got Lucian's satire about all the different camp, uh, accounts written of Lucius Verus operations and how ridiculous and over the top they were. But that also implies there were some, you know, that these ones are funny means mm. that there were some more sober versions. But it, it's, I mean, Britain, obviously, it's northern fringes of the empire. But having written on Hadrian's Wall, where you're dealing with about half a dozen mentions of this structure in all Greco-Roman literature, including Bede. Mm. <laughs> it's, um, and something as big as that, a monument, and they never bother to tell us what they're doing. It's, it's, it's that reminder of just how much we've lost. Mm. Um, yes, there's always the element as well of the things they don't bother to tell you because they just assumed everybody knew. Mm. Um, and you can see that if you, know, if you read Caesar's commentaries. But when you think there's nothing as detailed as that for an account of campaigning for the army of the principate josephus is the closest and he's dealing with a war of sieges so it's it's not quite the same as you see the roman army doing some things and it's great that we've got that detail but we've got all this archaeological evidence we know there's this huge institution this very organized sophisticated army and we've just got to guess that it works in the in a similar way to caesar's men um and then the you know when you think you have so little of Ammianus has survived. Um, most is lost, and he started in 96. So obviously the earlier centuries weren't described in as much detail, but um, when you come back to Lucian, he writes this satire, mocking ridiculous histories, but scholars are so desperate, we try and use it to, to plot the campaigns because yes. there, there is nothing. And yet this is a campaign led by one of the two emperors that is much trumpeted at the time, greatly celebrated, uh, and it, it's that, so it's that chance of survival mm. that means that there is so much we're guessing. And um, and then the archaeological element where, yes, you can plot bases, forts, look at their fortifications, look at their size, but only a small number will have been excavated to any real extent. And even then dating things, you know, you'll say late Flavian or Trajanic or something, but in in terms of trying to understand a campaign, that's means very little um you know it's there but why it's there what the people there are doing um why they're there it's uh it's 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 just left to conjecture largely i mean we can sort of suggest things but it's a wide wide range of possibilities yeah so so from having spent most of my adult life studying the roman army i 
like most people who, who work on anything, you feel you're knowing less and less as you go on and because yeah. you realize all the bits that are missing. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, let's switch from the Romans to the the Parthian Sassanids, um, because I think listeners of this podcast will be pretty familiar with the outline of the rivalry. But like me, I think they will have a real gap in their knowledge of how the Parthian and Sassanid state operated. So could you tell the listeners a little bit about how the government ran and how it was different from Roman rule? It's different in several ways. I mean, we've obviously got to say the caveat at the start that, yes, there are problems and gaps and things we don't know about the Romans, about the Byzantines later on. But by comparison, there's even less that we can say with absolute confidence because they do not leave. There is no substantial surviving Parthian literary tradition telling the story from their point of view. You get the odd interesting little thing where Josephus has this um, sort of digression about Babylonian Jews who become bandits, who then become recognized as, as governors under the Parthian king of kings. But um, that's he's telling you it because it's, it's the Jewish community and they do know something about what's going on. But otherwise, with the Sasanians, there is... A, more traces of a tradition. You've got the great inscriptions of, of Shapa the First and some other monuments. You've got um, a later tradition that survives into medieval literature that preserves memories, though heavily romanticized. Um, and that's interesting how they rather distort the record to play down the 400 years of Parthian rule into about half the time. So that's the start. We've got to be careful. We're, we're guessing with a lot of things. And then you've also got the the nature. This is an empire that's heartland is modern day Iran, Iraq, stretching into Afghanistan, parts of Syria, up to the sort of Caspian Sea, Black Sea area, and to the south down to the Gulf. Compared to the Roman Empire, that is very much a world of cities. And that tradition of the city-state, it's the way the Romans, and of course, particularly the Byzantines, because they have the even more... Um, the, the area that has an even deeper tradition of, of that sort of organized city civilization um, compared to some of the Western provinces where it's largely an introduction of Roman rule. And they have this sense of, the, you know, you have not far from where I live, you've got um, Venta Silurum, the, the Civitas capital of the Siluris tribe that's built by the Romans. And by Greco-Roman standards, it's a relatively small city size, but it, it shows how Roman government could only comfortably interact with a, a city and a council and those institutions that it understands. So you get the locals to, to build one. And of course, from their point of view, it makes them more politically significant and influential, but it's, it's imposing something. There are areas like that within the Parthian and Persian empires. And obviously you have cities like Seleucia on the Tigris that in its heyday probably rivals Antioch and Alexandria in size. And you have, because you've had Alexander briefly, and then the Seleucids there for so long. You've got this tradition of a, a Greek city with Greek laws, even, whatever ethnically the people are, culturally, this, this is Greek. Um, you have Parthian foundations nearby that are deliberately less Greek in law, but nevertheless, it's still the city idea that's there. And you, of course, you have the traditional, the, the, the Babylonians and people like that. You have cities that whose self-identity predates any Greek influence and indeed any Achaemenid Persian influence and goes back and they are still, the temple cults are going for a very long time. So you've got areas that are quite like the Roman Empire. And there is always this question about that the, the division between the two empires really cuts across 
the old Seleucid Empire, which in a sense could be seen as a whole, a coherent. And it's 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 slightly surprising that one or the other empire doesn't control all of this instead of always remaining. But then you move into central Iran and areas like that where there isn't this urban tradition. It, it's very different. So one thing to remember is the both the Parthian and the Sasanian Persian kings, they are the title is king of kings. This is a kingdom of other kingdoms. So you have quite large regional powers, and obviously at times, depending on influence, these will include Armenia, but more often Medea and others where it's more... More consistently, you could feel part of the, the Parthian Persian Empire. Um, but within those kingdoms, you have lesser kings as well. And that seems to be the roots of the Sasanian family of Adashir when he takes over, that he sort of works his way up stage by stage, going sort of local king, regional king, challenging the king of kings. So it is a very, it's a, it's a huge empire. It doesn't have the sea in the middle which is obviously characteristic, particularly of the United Roman Empire, but even, of course, for the Byzantines. While they've still got those provinces, you have this relatively fast communication, at least at certain times of year in certain conditions, that links them. Instead of mountain ranges that sometimes have passes that don't necessarily go in the way you want them to go, areas of steppe, areas of semi-desert, um, areas that are very well irrigated and well... So it's, um, it's, a, it's a mixture, and it takes much longer to get from one end of the Persian Empire to the other, even though it's not physically as big as the, the Roman Empire, just because of the nature of the landscape and the, the speed of travel. But it's so you have the king of kings. You also within the kingdoms, particularly in the heartland of um, more to the east. So away from the Roman Empire, not the, the, the more Hellenized areas are closer to Syria and the, the Roman Empire, but you have the great noble families, the great clans like the Suren, the Miran, Miran, sorry, the Karen. And these appear, they seem to have been founded by, it's tempting to call them Parthians, but you're never quite sure whether all these people are ethnically Parthians of this group that's moved into the north of um, the Seleucid Empire and taken over a province and gone from there, or are they locals, leaders who decide to ally with this this group and then become part of it, but they are they speak the Parthian language, which again is is not the one the nomads have brought in with them. It's it's one from the north. They have a, a form of Zoroastrianism that is particularly Parthian more than the style that will be dominant but not exclusive with the Sasanians. And these people, the the man who defeats Crassus at Carhai in fifty three BC is is the Soren, the, the head of the clan. We don't know his individual name. He's subsequently executed by the King of Kings for being too ambitious, too powerful, too successful. And that's the, the problem. You, you have um, a tradition of the King of Kings has a number of wives, as well as uh, the larger harem, that many of whom are daughters of the noble families, daughters of the petty kings. And it seems to be that if you could get recognition or if the King of Kings chose to, that the, the child of any of these could become the favoured heir. So there are usually lots of heirs around, which means that although each family, quite impressively, both the Assassid Parthians and the Sasanian Persians, they managed to exclude everybody who's not of their blood from a claim to be King of Kings. Nevertheless, they have the problem that lots of <laughs> there's usually lots of siblings around and other lines of the family. And 
you notice both with the Parthian kings and the Persian kings, they will very often have brothers or half-brothers as kings of the larger regions. And to some extent, that means they're a useful ally, but they're also a potential rival. So it's it's a balancing act all the time. I mean, the, the Emperor Tiberius talks about ruling the Roman Empire as holding the wolf by the ears. The problems are different, but the precariousness of the situation is similar for the Parthians and the Persians, because again, a rebellion can happen at one extreme of the empire, and it can take a long time before you've got the strength to deal with it. And your army, to a great extent, relies upon the contingents provided by the kings, the lesser kings, the, the, the clan leaders. You know, you have the tradition of um, the uh, the Surin, the Miran, the Karen. They go right the way through, even though they are essentially associated with the Parthians. The, most of these families change size to the Sasanians, and then they're, they're, they're there right the way through. And different clans rise and fall, but they keep providing many of the generals, many of the senior ministers, right the way through. And we can tell from surviving clay seals, from official documents that have survived, they are still using the Parthian language, they're still using the titles. And some of them will actually go on after Sasanian Persia has fallen, they will continue under the Arab Caliphate for generations. So you've got these regional powers that are mostly loyal and mostly will obey, but you can't be sure of them. And you have the problem that there is nearly always at least one and often several other potential kings of kings around. And of course, this is the pattern you have, um, particularly under Augustus, but at later times as well, princes from Parthia are sent to go and live in Rome. And hostage is probably the wrong word, but they are the Romans back several men who go back trying to become kings. None of them succeed in the long term. But while there's a tendency to say, well, that's because they've become too westernized and the, the locals just don't respect them. They can't. They also can't understand the politics. They haven't lived it to know the relationships between the families, the balance of power, the, the gestures you have to do not to upset anybody. Um, even the one that Tacitus says, you know, he's criticized because he doesn't like hunting anymore and doesn't like feasting in the Parthian style. He's become too Roman. And that's probably true, but we should also remember plenty of homegrown noblemen and princes fail dismally when they try to become king of kings, do not last it very long. It's rather like Roman civil wars. You get strong rulers who are keep stability for a long time. Then there are periods where somebody gets murdered, there's weakness, and often you have a very rapid turnover and a period of a decade or so of, of civil war before another strong man appears who manages to frighten, placate, and convince enough people that it's better to keep him around than rebel. Uh, so it's, it's similar. There's a lot of similarities with the Roman Empire, but there are also profound differences in the way it works. Um, although there are some things we don't understand. You know, you have the rise with um, the Persians, clearly from the frontier defences that have been excavated and studied now um, near the Caspian Sea, there must be large numbers of pretty much professional troops to garrison these. But we don't quite know where these come from, when they develop. Um, again, it's, it's so difficult to understand the processes. Something will suddenly appear uh, when the Romans notice it, and it'll be talked about, or it'll appear in, in um, a relief or something like that. But we don't we don't know much. So you've got similar but different. And overall, although it's the, the Parthian Persian Empire, it's not as big as the Roman Empire. It's nowhere near as well populated as the Roman Empire because of the nature of the land. 
And because of that, it's not as wealthy, but it's still far, far bigger than anyone else that's out there with whom the Romans have contact. And both Parthians and Sasanians have some contact with China, but even that's pretty distant to the point where it's never never conflict or serious rivalry. It's distant trade and some you know, political diplomatic contact. That's brilliant. Thank you. Um, do shoot this down <laughs> if it's completely inaccurate, <clears throat> but just <clears throat> because I'm just thinking about the Romans, certainly in certain periods <clears throat> have a much more um, meritocratic process by which men rise up through the bureaucracy and the army and obviously a very sort of legal based and and you know you are a general you're it has nothing to do with where you come from Hmm. iranian culture in that in those empires sounds a bit more like western europe as it would develop in the middle ages a sort of a sense of family and your house is important and your nobility is something you want to promote Mm. and so if there had been a western europe if charlemagne had created (laughs) a sasanian empire he Mm. would have had to manage sort of noble houses from france and germany in that in that way yes i mean there's a similarity in older books there was a great tendency to describe the parthians in particular as feudal Mm. and their military system as essentially that and I mean, the medievalists now get worked up about the word feudal and whether or not you should use it. So it's all, but there is that pattern of relationships that, again, we sometimes forget, though, that within the Roman Empire at some periods, there is a great reliance on allied kingdoms and these dynasts that you appoint. And that's the the pattern, particularly the first century BC and into much of the first century AD. And one of the issues is, you know, just who is, who is, who's approving the king of Armenia? But People like Cleopatra, their whole career is being a loyal Roman ally, but they get painted because they end up on the wrong side in civil wars. <laughs> they end get painted as an enemy, but they never actually fight the Romans. They simply, they're staying in power for them relies on providing whoever is the dominant Roman at the time with the money and resources that they want and not really caring too much about your own kingdom. It's simply survival because if you don't do it, they'll find somebody else who will. They're, again, and many of these the regimes that develop and some of the kingdoms in these areas don't seem to have particularly deep roots, particularly in that sort of, um, you know, Osroene areas like that, even parts of, of Medea, let alone Commagene, Cappadocia, these sorts of areas. The Romans chop and change dynasties, and you'll get, you know, the Herod family spread around over quite a wide area as they're chosen for various, oh, you can have this bit. And in the end, most of them don't last, but nevertheless, so there's an element of that even within the Roman system, but it is much more pronounced because it's a different tradition there. And also there do seem to be these very strong regional identities. Now, you could argue that with the Sasanians, there's more promotion. There seems to be a development of more of a bureaucracy. But again, most of the evidence for this comes from quite late. It's 5th century, 6th century onwards. And there is a tendency for some types of scholars to assume, well, along comes Ardashir I, snaps his fingers, and suddenly you have the Sasanian Persian Empire, that it doesn't develop. And also you have, you know, the, the famous inscriptions by um, the priest of Zoroaster, who sort of has almost a parallel inscription to Shapur's triumphs of all the things he did and where he made new fire temples in Roman territory and all this sort of thing. Now, we don't quite know how much that reflects the power he really had, because you get the other traditions whereby they're quite indulgent of, you know, the Prophet Mani and people like this at the same time. There is perhaps slightly more um, attempt at centralization and central control. And, you know, the, the great, 
the genius of the Romans, or, or call it what you will, was the, you know, whereas America is the great melting pot, Rome didn't bring people to it. It went out to the world and made them Romans, at least the elite and substantial numbers beneath that as well, to the extent where when the Western Empire collapses, nobody's saying, I want to be British, I want to be Spanish. They all want to be Roman. And, you know, within the Eastern Empire for that long time, there's it's hard for people to imagine an alternative. Civilization has become tied up with being Roman. And that's just reinforced as the church develops as well. It, 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 there is... So the Romans do that, but the Romans are very unusual in incorporating people and making them Roman. And obviously, you know, later on, some of the, the generals that rise who, you know, will be described as a, a Sarmatian, an Alan, a Frank or whatever. But to all intents and purposes, yes, they might have fair hair, but they're Roman. They do everything just as any Roman would. And even, you know, you've had that early on back to Romulus and Remus. It, it's the story, your population comes from outside. You, you've had this and you've, enfranchised your slaves and particularly their children from very early on and made them Roman. So there isn't, the identity is, is much more, um, it's not ethnically based in any, it's, it's much more. So it's harder to do that within the diversity of the Parthian and Persian empire. And you notice as well that they have, the kings of kings tend to move around and they spend time in different capitals, but also just, processing here and partly that's a climate thing you know there are parts of the empire where it's it's too hot to be in summer it's too cold in winter but it's also as emperors like augustus will do as some of the later western emperors and eastern one will do it's it's the moving around to be available to make your presence felt to receive petitions but again it's easier to do in the roman empire than it is in the east and um it's hard to know whether the development of a more centralized bureaucracy under the latest Sasanian kings of kings is simply a development because the regime has been there. And whether, when you get traces of this in the sources, is this just a strong man who is able to impose his will far more effectively in the same way that, say, a Diocletian can or a Constantine um, or a Justinian even, um, but other weaker emperors or other weaker kings of kings can't. So... Depending on often we're looking at a time, most, most of the best sources for the Parthians come at times of their civil wars. So you shouldn't expect a king of kings to be that powerful and that influential. So it, it's it's again, it's always the problem. We're looking from the outside, we're looking with all the misunderstandings the Romans bring, and then we have a little bit of, of information from inside, but I think it, from a practical point of view, the empire clearly works because it's devised for such a long time and it's successful and it's powerful. Um, so I think this almost devolution of power seems to work within that system. Um, yeah. And do we have a sense why they didn't develop a, his, a tradition of writing histories? I mean, not that that was... Not that most states did, but um, or do we know of histories or, or any kind of sense that things were lost? Um, I, again, it, a lot has been lost. It mm. probably was never. Um, I mean, you have obviously you've got cities like Seleucia, you've got the Hellenistic tradition. So there's there is that tradition that is unusual when the Greeks develop this idea of let's write narrative history and then the Romans take that on. But I mean, the Romans don't really start that till end of the, the third century, early second century BC after the war with Hannibal. But it's quite clear they've kept records before that. 
And a lot of ancient states will keep their records, their laws, their property, rituals, this sort of thing. The, you know, the Babylonians are like recording uh, astronomical observations and how this relates to the calendar, to religion, to the, their beliefs. So people are recording things. And you have um, several Greco-Roman authors claim that when they, they tell you a story, so some of the things about the origins of um, the name Sasan, the house of Sasan, that they have consulted Persian records. And others refer to Parthian records. So, and that they're official, you know, this is what they say about themselves. You suspect that in a lot of these areas, the, the culture remains primarily oral. And some of the later medieval tradition and figures like Rustam and things like that, they're, they're clearly from that sort of epic poetry, that heroic poetry, the same tradition that occasionally you'll get the Homer who writes it all down or that gets written down eventually that crystallizes, but that if it's left as a living thing, it sort of, it evolves, it develops, it adapts to, but it preserves elements of earlier things. So, you know, some people have argued that you can associate the character of Rustam with the Surin, um, and perhaps even the Surena that defeats Crassus, but lots of other people as well get rolled into the hero. Uh, so it, I think it's it's largely that. And then we have the, I mean, the, the frustrating thing is we have these collections of clay seals from uh, that reflect the Sasanian bureaucracy. So they, they have their address to a man, his title, you know, general of this area. But obviously those once were around scrolls and documents that didn't survive the fire. The clay gets baked so we can just, we, we get the seal, but all the rest of it's gone. So there was, was a huge amount of written material, even if it was often bureaucratic or letters, instructions, orders, this sort of thing. Again, it was there probably not quite to the same extent as the amount there was in the Greco-Roman world, but a lot still, um, but it's gone. It's, it's just, that it, it's, um, you know, the, 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 it's, it's that problem we have to face with so much of, of human history, but particularly the ancient world anywhere really other than till comparatively recently, because of course you've got those few Chinese records of contact with um, the Parthians and the Sasanians. Uh, but even that's probably only a small part of what was officially there. And this is dealings with a dis very distant fringe people. And it's interesting how they'd, as you'd expect with any culture, just as the Romans and Greeks misunderstand what they see, the emphasis in the Chinese sources on the Parthians as rice growers, because that's what you'd expect. What else would simply, you're, you're <laughs> acknowledging these people are fairly civilized, they're organized. So what else would you do? Mm. And, you know, we're, we've obviously always got to be on the lookout for where the Romans are doing exactly the same thing and just assuming, well, they're basically like us or just misunderstanding things. Um, Brilliant. I, I definitely encourage people to buy the book, obviously, but to, to, to follow you as you, as you connect those threads from, from those first encounters in the late Republican era, all the way up to, Heraclius, um, which is where I want to turn now mm. for the last part of the interview. It's obviously a very um, dramatic and popular story within the history of Byzantium. Um, listeners will remember um, uh, Maurice restoring Khosrow II to his throne and then being overthrown by Phocas. And um, Khosrow II then, to avenge his patron, starts conquering the eastern border. And what do you make of that? Because that, that's kind of the what you talk about across the whole book is that both sides are pretty happy with this border. A lot of the wars are fought for sort of PR purposes. Um, what do you think? I mean, we are speculating, but what do you mm. think makes Khosrow II think, no, I'm going to attempt something bigger? I, I do want, I mean, you can't exclude 
the personal element. Mm. He might genuinely have felt that having been saved by someone who's now murdered, that he owes it to that memory to do the same in reverse, basically to, and of course you have possibly, he claims he's got uh, Maurice's son there early on. Now, whether it's really is or not, because it depends on how literally you take the Roman sources of them all being murdered, who then disappears and we don't know what happens to him. So are you actually just trying to repay the compliment, do exactly the same thing? I suspect, I think there's a lot to be said for the idea that probably his ambitions change and develop. Because again, we have a severe problem. If we had a Procopius for these years, and you could follow year by year in detail those campaigns, because it it takes them years to break through the Roman frontier. And this has become over a century and more back, really going back into the fourth century. In the world, you start to see an Amianus of border fortresses, well defended. They And the, the emphasis on campaigns is not battles, but sieges. Because if you could take and either sack or even hold on to these fortresses, you were able to sort of move your advantage forward a bit. Um, and that frontier has sort of crystallized, got stronger on each side. But because we have such flimsy, you know, the sources are so poor, you forget that the, the Sasanians spend years battering their way through. And presumably some of these sieges are the same sort of epics that you have in Ammianus and Procopius where you've got all the attempts to intimidate the defenders, then negotiate, persuade them to give in. In the past, in the main, the Persian king of kings on these campaigns has been looking for money. You know, yes, he wants glory, but it's come in and it's to extort from the individual cities and then get a good deal from the Roman emperor to go away, essentially to leave them in pieces. And you wait until the Romans are busy in the West or weak otherwise. So there's an element of the pattern that you could say at the start, maybe that's just it. He knows the Romans are weak. So let's go and see uh, what I can achieve. But normally, the Romans respond far faster to get a field army or two into the area to start to make life hard for the Persians. So you, you notice this very much a pattern of diminishing returns in, in Procopius in particular, the accounts of the, the first year or so of expedition. They raise loads of money. They extort lots from the cities. They take several. Second year, they don't get so much and so on. And it tends to, to the point where you actually feel the King of Kings should have made peace earlier when he could have got a better deal and he ends up with the worse one. But the temptation was to just roll the dice one more, play another hand, you know, raise the stakes. But this doesn't happen because the Roman troops that are sent to the area are partly divided over their loyalty, um, but focuses generals on the spot don't do well. And you almost feel the Persians, maybe there's just a sense of an opportunity. Okay, we've got another year. We can go and besiege these. There isn't, nobody's going to stop us. So let's get a bigger advantage and then it reaches the point where they have effectively taken out the Roman frontier system and they can move freely much deeper and there's still nobody to stop them. So does it develop from, let's just see, um, you know, let's, let's again, let's put some pressure on and I can use the perfect, you know, they, they usually need a pretext for war. Neither side wants to just declare war on the other. So they claim some faults on the other's part and the, you know, one of the frequent ones has been, well, I need, you Romans need to help pay for the, the frontier defences to the north that are stopping the, the white Huns and others from coming and they'll bother us, but they'll also bother you. So, you know, we're doing you a favour, pay us some money. And in the past, you've agreed to this. You've got the, the vengeance for your dead patron. And, um, but what's odd is that 
relatively early on, one of the striking themes again, and it's it's there in detail in Procopius, but you can go right back to Augustus's day, and certainly it's there in detail in Tacitus' account of the war with Nero, is all the embassies that are going back and forth. Whenever there is, even when there's open war, let alone between them, each side's talking to the other all the time. And sometimes it's on the pretext of let's ransom some prisoners or something like this, but they they keep on making each other an offer, you know, like, okay, let's make peace, we'll give you this, that's okay. And the wars go on when neither side's quite satisfied with the negotiation. Once Kuzro or Kuzro's representatives refuse to speak to the Romans or Roman ambassadors are brought to him and he has them arrested, then executed, that's profoundly different. That suggests that at least at that point, if not before, he's decided, I can get more than this. You know, I can actually take territory permanently. Because if you think back to all the wars they fought for centuries, how much land has any king of kings ever taken permanently? It, it's tiny. It's, you know, you might take a city and yes, you know, you've um, abandoned Nisibis, you know, the, the big... Um, great and, and how that dominates the sources is who's to blame and what's gone wrong and this is a great disaster but it doesn't actually change the size of the, the territory you control very much it just gives you a slightly more advantageous frontier and a slightly less advantageous frontier for the romans so suddenly to stop talking and you're starting to occupy land and cities with a view to saying and this is more marked obviously going to syria and palestine and when you start to take the big cities, the Antiochs, the Jerusalems, places like this, and then later on in Egypt. And, and it is largely because there's no one to stop him. The Roman attempts to block them are pretty feeble because the civil war dominates what's going on and then leaves them so weak. And yes, maybe there's a longer term overstretch from Justinian's expansion and the fact that you've still got people like Heraclius out there in Africa with some troops, enough to mount a, a successful bid to the, the throne, but you've got to leave some there, otherwise that area is overrun as well. So there might be some of that, but I think it's, we're always tendency as historians, we want to see underlying causes, changes in factors. There might even be in all of this an element of luck that the Persians just do very well and they win more than they have for ages. And then it starts to snowball. And then Kuzro thinks, well, actually, you know, this, this let's, because there's clearly, even though there's been this self-imposed restraint in wars between the empires before then, they don't like each other. And they would, there is this sort of dream of let's, let's conquer the world. Let's be the, you know, the, the king of all the, the Aryans and the non-Aryans, literally, rather than just in, as the same as Augustus can talk about ruling in India and this sort of thing. It, it's, um, so it, I think it develops and then chance plays a part. And it's striking to me that the, the attitude of many of the Roman communities within these, these provinces is quite similar to a lot of Western communities in the fifth century, in that central government can't, the empire can't protect you. So you're faced with a choice. Do you deal with, in, in the West, it's a barbarian warlord. Here, it's a far more organized, but not necessarily huge numerically army. But if they treat you fairly well, if they'll grant you reasonable terms, then you can't be expected to die for an emperor who's not supporting you. And maybe the emperor and the empire will come back. So cities start, and then and that's the pattern that obviously when the Arab armies come in again, it's the same thing. But it's because Heraclius will win and the, the Persians will get chased out, we sort of see this as more of an aberration, but it's actually quite similar to things other Roman communities, the way they've reacted to the same sort of threat. 
because you don't have the military capacity to to rebel and do it. You know, the empire has very much deterred any development of that sort of tradition. You haven't wanted that. So you're left when the army isn't there, there's not much you can do. And when the Persians are willing to deal with the local nobility and essentially communities keep their laws, they keep the traditions. Most importantly, they keep their religious practices. You know, you're not going around knocking down churches and putting up fire temples. You're, you're actually treating people pretty well. Well enough that, yes, you're imposing tribute on them, you want lots of money and you are an invader, but they can, not, it's not so terrible that they can't accept it, at least in the meantime, and hope maybe things will get better. Yes, I think um, growing up on stories of the French resistance or whatever <laughs> has misled a lot of people mm. about what what communities in medieval ancient times mm. were realistically able to do. Um, so, final question: mm. <laughs> what what's what's your assessment of Heraclius's career? Because people are always tempted to say, "Well, Heraclius is a is a strategic genius because he he wins the war." But there are those who push back and say, well, you know, he started a civil war that, that led to this. He lost early battles and then he lost to the Arabs. So how do you see him in, in a wide view? It, it, it's never simple. And you've always got to be careful to, you know, it's fine as an after dinner conversation, but you never want to get into your top 10 list of generals and who could win. <laughs> and, you know, which, OK, you've even got with in the ancient world with um, Scipio and Hannibal talking about who's the best sort of thing. But um the problem is focus is clearly not doing a good job. Um, you know, he's risen in it, but think how many emperors have come to power that way. Not so much recently in, in that case. It, it, this is almost a throwback to the third and fourth centuries of how you do things. But he's not defending well against the Persians. So I don't think, you know, again, you could, you could argue, well, maybe he should have been a good loyal Roman chap and hope it all worked out. He does win. He clearly has military talent. And he clearly can inspire. He starts in a bad place. And again, you have the renewed attempts. So let's negotiate. Let's let's do what we've always done in the past. Let's talk to the Persians. I'm sure the King of Kings will be reasonable. You know, and even that point where the, you know, you have the letter from the Senate of Constantinople, which is quite extraordinary in the context and not mentioning him. And that, you know, you are wondering, would he actually have been willing to step down because they're so desperate? But it's I, th I think, I mean, it, it's it's very interesting because, again, he fights, but he does clearly learn, and his expeditions are impressive, And but the way it all happens, the speed he maneuvers makes makes it very clear that these are quite small armies, um, but he's very good at leading, and you've got enough to make a good army that size, and it probably is within the range of the strategic on and things like that, where, you know, Anything over 10,000 is big. Anything over fifteen to 20,000 is almost unimaginably huge, which is a contrast even to Procopius and Belisarius and others' armies when they're facing the Persians. Not in the West. In the West, the armies are pretty tiny. Um, so I think he's able to... And luck is on his side. I mean, the Persians clearly exhaust themselves and you have internal rebellion that brings them down. Because probably, I mean, again, you look at all the success the Sasanians have had but to hold on to all this new territory is requiring numbers of troops they just don't really possess. And it's it's the problem for any conqueror when there's a rival out there, even if it's someone like Hannibal in Italy in the, the third century, you take allies away from the enemy, you take over territory, you've then got to protect them. Otherwise, they're, they're back very quickly to the other side. So 
I think you, you sometimes have to dial down the rhetoric a bit and realize how, how desperate these campaigns are. They're extraordinarily bold to, in that situation, think rather than, well, let's hunker down, do the best we can, hold them off as long as possible. Actually to say, no, we've, we haven't got that. We'll lose that way. We've got to try and attack, um, which is a very old fashioned Roman way of doing things, but it hasn't been anything like as possible um, in most, most circumstances. So, you know, I, I think, yes, the man is talented. Obviously later there is, it's hard to believe there isn't a factor of exhaustion after the war for both Sasanians and Romans because this has been a life or death struggle in a way that nothing has been up until then. It's bound to have been chaotic. You're trying to reabsorb provinces that have been occupied for years on end. And again, you know, think back to the French resistance. The Persians have been in Egypt, in Syria, for as long as the Germans were in, in France. And you know, it did take time to put everything back together. And that's when, as with the Sasanians, to a great extent, they've used local institutions, they've used the police, they've used the authorities, the law, all this sort of thing. Even so, it's still a major dislocation in the system. And then you've got the whole competitiveness for who's going to be the, the factions in charge afterwards. So I think one thing that struck me is that, you know, you have these appeals that Heraclius makes to his men fighting the Persians that promises them you'll get to heaven if you die fighting. You'll be a martyr, effectively. You know, that, that with the, buying into that tradition, it's odd that they don't then say that when they're fighting the Muslim Arabs. And they, I really think they don't take them very seriously because the tradition has always been, you know, you look back to the strategic on and the like, Arabs are not a big threat. Um, and that perception of these are people, yeah, they're nasty, they'll raid, but they'll go away. And the Persians are an enemy you've known for so many centuries, and you know they're big, you know they're sophisticated, you know they're formidable militarily, um, very determined, very smart. So you respect them, whereas these more ragged-looking armies that appear from states, you, you know, names you've, you've never heard of, you don't acknowledge, and you just think, well, it, it's, it's a storm, but it's a storm that'll pass. But of course, you have, for many of these communities, they're being occupied for the second time, and the Arabs also treat them very well. You know, there is great respect, and partly that's a religious aspect. It's easier for them to do within the Roman Empire than it is to some extent with the Zoroastrian Persians. You know, there's more hostility there, whereas you go to Jerusalem, and yes, you march in, but you don't start pulling down churches, and you build a mosque off to the side. So it, it's um, so I think for communities that in their own memory can think of, of an occupation before, it's much easier to give in a second time round. And you also, you know, you acknowledge you can't fight. But again... It's always, you know, dangerous just to say, well, this is why one side loses. One of the reasons the Arab armies win is that they're good at what they're doing. And they get on a roll. They get the confidence. They gather momentum. And their ability to incorporate others in the, the evidence you have for Jews, for Christians, for others fighting in the early armies and getting their share of the loot in the survival of the, the Surin and the Karen and these great clans for generations means that it's it's we tend to work back from the reconquista the crusades the islamic conquest and see everything in in this later opposition where it's much more bitter at least sometimes i mean that's a a, a more complex story than than the sort of the the casual um look suggests so i th i think he's a very able man but he's you have to be the first to say that he is emperor in a very difficult time period. 
And he is not like many of these talented people. They're not perfect. They make mistakes as well. And so many commanders, you know, Alexander the Great had the, in a sense, good fortune to die before he lost a battle. Um, someone like Napoleon, if they'd been shot in 1812, might have had a different reputation. Um, you know, you've, you've almost got to live long enough to, to get old to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and Heraclius, in a, to, to an extent, does that. He goes on, you know, he's not the vigorous man he's been. He can't command armies in the field because obviously, yes, as a, as a commander, he gets good treatment. He's got slave servant staff around him. But when you still think about the distances he traveled in those campaigns, in some very rugged, very difficult terrain, and he's campaigning throughout the year, I mean, he goes into winter quarters for a short period. You've got to be tough as old boots to do this stuff, as have your soldiers, and you're setting an example to inspire them. So this is someone who's done a lot, but a decade and alone two decades on, you can't keep doing that. That's that's something that. Um, so so I, I on the whole, I'm still fans probably the wrong word, but I'm still inclined <laughs> to think this is this is a very able man who does a lot and achieves a lot, and he's also lucky. Mm. as the this this deep roman tradition the best commanders are lucky because if you're not you've had it anyway um so it's not all his ability there are other people involved there's chance and there's this overreach on the part of Guzro mm. that turns his own generals against him and perhaps this tradition of starting to get suspicious of his own people which would not be unusual mm. within this system um and you know you can always say well given that the they did rebel, then he was right to be suspicious, but yeah. it's always chicken and egg situation with that sort of thing. That's it's such an interesting answer. And um, I think this is where we'll close the interview because you've just made me realize that had Heraclius died in his sleep before uh, the Arabs invaded, we would now be saying, oh, if Heraclius was still alive. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it would have been different. He could have held them back. Exactly. That's the thing. I mean, it, it brings us back to, Yes, we look at the trends, we look at all the the military culture, the economy, the society behind it, but these are still flesh and blood human beings and they all have their personalities. And whilst, yes, it's not all about one man, it's not all about the commander, nevertheless, these leaders do make a huge difference. And those little chances of, um, you know, the stray arrow that takes somebody out when they're young or that misses them and and adds their heroic image. um, And given those campaigns, he could have got killed. And he could have died of disease and he could have just died, just died in his sleep. And as you say, we, <laughs> it would have been, that was the decisive factor that caused it all. So yeah. It's, um... Well, it's insights like that, that I hope people will uh, be inspired to go and buy the book and to read more and to learn more about the rivalry. Dr. Goldsworthy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been great fun. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did. As I mentioned before, if you'd like to listen to the book uh, for free, then go to audibletrial.com forward slash Byzantium, where you can sign up for a free trial of Audible service. Uh, And you get to keep that for 30 days, and you can keep the book forever for free uh, if you don't want to stick with Audible service. But why wouldn't you? I am still a subscriber to Audible years later. It's like having a second uh, podcast app full of amazing audio And uh, yeah, it's addictive once you start (laughs) going through their catalogue and finding all the good stuff there. Because it's not just books. You can find old sitcoms and and, uh, TV episodes if uh, you're into that the way I am. Anyway, 
that's it for the history of Byzantium today. But if you'd like to know more about the history of Cyprus, that underrated and undercovered part of the Byzantine Empire, then check out the History of Cyprus podcast. Andreas is not going in chronological order. So if you're interested in the Byzantine period, there are already episodes touching on uh, the condominium with the caliphate and the crusader occupation of the island. Uh, But there's also episodes about British rule and other modern stuff, as well as stuff before the Romans even appeared. So check out the History of Cyprus wherever you get your podcasts. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.